Well, with Remembrance Day on Friday, we're going to take a trip back in time tonight to the height of the Second World War, when tens of thousands of German prisoners of war uh, were sent to a series of camps set up here in Canada. I know that a lot of us, at least growing up, I mean, whether it was movies or books or TV or Hogan's Heroes or whatever, we knew an awful lot, I did at least, about uh, prisoners of war camps for Allied soldiers in Europe, but very little about the prisoners of war camps that existed here in Canada for those that the Allies had captured. So amongst those set up in Canada was a major one called Camp 123 in southern Alberta. It was in Medicine Hat, and it was home to more than 12,000 POWs at its height, nearly as many people as lived in the area at the time. Now, for the most part, um, and you'll remember this from, from Hogan's Heroes, perhaps, the camps were run by the prisoners. And in Medicine Hat, where many of them were part of the Africa Corp, an an expeditionary combat force um, of the Nazi German army that fought in North Africa, predominantly in Libya, um, among among them were many Nazi true believers. So within the camp, it was almost like uh, all the rules of being within one of these units had been recreated. Um, Now, there was relative peace in the camp until two men, prisoners, were beaten and hanged by their fellow prisoners. Now, RCMP investigators apparently infiltrated the camp and they discovered the existence of almost a shadow shadow Nazi government inside the camp, complete with its own Gestapo, responsible for enforcing discipline and loyalty to the Fuhrer. Now, suspects were identified, charges were laid, and it then led to a series of trials that resulted in the last mass hanging in Canadian history. And it's all laid out in a new book that's part history, part true crime. And joining me now is historian Nathan Greenfield. He's author of Hanged in Medicine Hat, Murders in a Nazi Prisoner of War Camp, and the disturbing true story of Canada's last mass execution. And he joins us tonight from Ottawa. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, Thank you for having me. I think it, it might not come as a surprise to all Canadians, but I think a lot of Canadians would be uh, surprised to understand just what how extensive a network of prisoner of war camps existed in this country during the Second World War, and specifically this uh, quite large one in southern Alberta. Well, yeah, they were spread out across the country. Uh, in fact, uh, there was one uh, where Man in His World is now in Montreal. There was one in Bowmanville, and there were a number in in Alberta. The two largest camps were, in fact, in Medicine Hat and Lethbridge. So, so tell me, how, how big was, was this camp, and, and who was in it? About 12,000 men in it. The largest group in the camp were men captured from the Africa Corps. And uh, over the years, that changed. In fact, the killing of Carl Lehman was uh, triggered because several thousand men were being transferred to Nice, Ontario, to make room for POWs from Normandy. Right, of course. I mean, it's so many of the of, of what we know as the great battles of Europe had a, had a ripple effect back to the prisoners of war camp camps in Canada. Uh, you've described this the setup of this camp, and I, I think for those of us who've seen movies about POW camps in Europe, uh, you know, Nazi POW camps back in the day, this was a, quite a different setup, wasn't it? They had, the, the prisoners had quite a lot of autonomy and freedom to do stuff. Well, actually, that was the case in Europe also. In an odd way, Hogan's Heroes is a not bad primer on what a prison of war camp was like. Inside the wire, as it's called, the prisons of war under the Geneva Convention ran most of the show. 
they uh, had their own uh, offices. Uh, if there were offices uh, in this in, in uh, medicine, that there was only one, uh, the Dr. Nolte. Otherwise, it was the senior non-com. The senior non-coms, who, one, one of which was chosen to be the man of confidence, essentially Colonel Hogan right. uh, in the camp. And they had uh, the rights to uh, organize their lives for the most part. They, they provided the cooks, they organized uh, games, they organized sports, they organized education, things like that. And there was uh, there was food. I mean, it wasn't. I guess perhaps what I was getting at is it wasn't as austere as one might expect. No, and of course, in Canada, it wouldn't have been. Uh, although mm. there was rationing here. There were no food shortages here. In fact, the average POW put on 11 pounds during uh, his years in, of incarceration. You've also pointed out, and this sort of is where the book starts to come in, that within the camp itself, it, it existed much as the as the Nazi army had, so that there were bosses and that, and that Nazism itself was very much enforced within the camp, if that's the right way of putting it. Yes, it is, especially uh, in this particular camp and in others uh, across Canada. The Africa Corps was heavily Nazified, and once the, the men were here, they reproduced that in their organization of the camp under the uh, hut leaders and then the ultimately the man of confidence. And there was a what was called a Gestapo. Of course, it, it wasn't a Gestapo in the in the technical sense, but it functioned as one within the camp that enforced discipline amongst the men. There were minor issues of discipline, not saluting the right person, etc. But the most important way that they enforced discipline was to try to enforce a Nazi ideology within the camp. So considering this was a little world into itself, I mean, I gather the, the prisoner of war camp, the population of the prisoner of war camp was virtually the same size as medicine had itself at the time. Yes, it did was. they get along? Was there, was, it, was, it, was there any interaction? Did, did people get along? Was it okay? The people of Medicine Hat were quite happy when the camp was built because it provided jobs, and through the war it provided jobs. Medicine Hat had suffered terribly during the Depression. The uh, uh, denizens of Medicine Hat were quite used to seeing um, German soldiers in full uniform walking around. They would call parole walks. There were men who worked outside the camp on farms and in the forests, and uh, they were seen quite regularly. The book opens with an essay, discussion of an essay written by Joyce Reese, a 16-year-old girl who played hooky to see the last day of the first trial in 1946. Uh, she was a member of the Glee Club, the Victory Girls, and they actually performed in the camp in Christmas 1942. Wow. So, so when does this start to take a turn towards something, shall we say, darker? Because that's really what this is all about, right? Okay, right. In 1943, Private August Plazic was killed. Well, what had happened was the leadership in the camp had heard rumors that the members of the Africa Corps, who had been members of the French Foreign Legion, were going to move against the Nazified camp leadership, and an investigation was ordered. Several men were taken in to be investigated. One of them was Plazic. He was actually killed, not because of anything he said, but because... Just before he was going in to be questioned, Private Schultz broke away from the men holding him. He had just been interrogated and ran towards the wire. The men in the camp saw him running towards the wire, which could mean only one thing, that he was about to defect, so to speak, to uh, the Canadians. They started following him. Others ran towards the hut that he was in, and they caught Plazic. 
and dragged him to another hut and hung him. Essentially, he was killed in a riot. There was no, there were no plans to kill him at that point. Had he been discovered to be a traitor, there would have been. But he was essentially killed in a riot, in a riotous action. So we've talked about about the, the death of one prisoner of war by his own people. What then happens? Where does this then turn into what we now know as the 1946 trial and the last mass hanging? In 1944, Dr. Carl Lehman was executed. He was executed because they considered him to be a traitor. They were right. They didn't know that, but they happened to have been right. He was he had been giving information to the Canadians, but they had no way of knowing that. So he's executed by the Gestapo the night before they are shipped out to Nye's prison camp in Ontario. And when you say Gestapo, this is literally within the camp itself. This is, yeah, right? this is yeah, within the camp gotcha. itself. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, the camp Gestapo. So the investigation of the first killing in 43 by the RCMP is going on, and then there's a second killing in 44. The case isn't broken until after the war in 45, when a letter is left on a typewriter in Nye's, the prison camp, naming names. Right. And then they break the case. And that then leads to the trials in 46. Just to clarify before we get there, so even within the camp, what was happening within the camp itself was considered to be a crime on Canadian territory that could be investigated by the RCMP, clearly. Yes, it, it was considered uh, to be a crime on Canadian territory, and we'll get to that in a second, mm-hmm. and could be investigated by the RCMP, military police, etc. Case is broken in 46, charges are brought. We have the first trial of the three men accused of killing Plazak. One is sentenced to death. He is hung in April, one to a long-term in prison, and then he's ultimately sent back, I think, in 48 or 49. One is exonerated. And then we have the second trial of the men who killed Dr. Carl Lehman. Their trials are more interesting in many respects, and that's because of the debate about whether or not they were following orders correctly. After the bomb plot, Hitler ordered to be killed. That was before Lehman was executed, but Lehman was executed partially because of that order. And that leads to the debate about Canadian territory. And for that, I have to speak about homosexuality in the camp for a moment, not for any prurient interest. I wasn't interested in the men's sex lives, but it's important because it's used by both the defense and the prosecution in the second set of trials to talk about what was the structure in the camp. The defense used it to say since the homosexuality was punished by the German leadership with the knowledge of the Canadians, then German military law, and for that matter, Canadian military law, prevailed within the camp, and therefore what was called the degradation ceremony was legal. If the degradation ceremony is legal because German military law prevails in the camp, then the order to execute a traitor is at least prima facie legal. Then we have, so the trials take place, each of the men is uh, convicted for killing Dr. Carl Lehman, and this issue about whether or not Canadian law fully prevails within the camp becomes central to both the appeals and before the appeals to inside of the trial itself. There are several motions by the defense and uh, Judge Housen, and one of the great lines of, I am of the opinion that Camp Number 132 is within Canada. Canadian law prevailed, and the reason why it's called, I, the subtitle is the disturbing true story is 
I think, and several lawyers today whom I've spoken to think, it should not have prevailed. At the very least, it should have led to long-term sentences and not executions. Because, as you point out, this was the last mass hanging in this country. They weren't alone. You also point out there was another individual with them, um, not related. Yes, and this was the last one, right? So so in in other words, it became a, a pretty significant part of Canadian history as well. Well, a significant unknown part of Canadian history until until my book, yes. When we look back at that time, I I was also surprised to learn that, and this is separate from from this story, but several prisoners of war who were here ended up coming back after the war. They ended up coming and settling Uh, here. Yes, quite a few. In fact, the engineering officer who pushed the button, which launched the torpedo, which sank the Esquimalt off of uh, Halifax Harbor uh, just days before the end of the war. His U-boat surrenders in Halifax a few days later. He is sent back to Germany, and he returns to Canada and became the chief engineering officer of the Toronto Transit Commission. For example, um, when when people read this book, I gather one of the things that's really, for me, the thing that was most fascinating was how much, how little I knew about camps like the one in Medicine Hat. I mean, there's feels like there's a lot of history to be learned here. Yeah, what's interesting about it is that it's not known. And Canadian history is considered boring in relation to a great neighbor to the South. And as you guess from the accent, I am from Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> and so you have, you know, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, things that Hollywood has turned into extraordinarily dramatic moments. Canadian history doesn't have an awful lot of those, and for that, I think we should be very thankful. But we do have a history that is worth knowing. We do have a history that has very odd things in it, like the fact that these men were able to send back to Germany during the war from a special Eaton's catalog, stockings and lingerie for their wives and girlfriends. Yeah. So they were able to send special chocolate, which didn't melt back to Germany. All of this was shipped free of charge. Canadian government paid for it all. And it was shipped through Turkey, which was neutral in the Second World War. It it is a a remarkable history. Nathan Greenfield, uh, the book is called Hanged in Medicine Hat. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for your interest.